0: Well, good morning, church. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. My name is Tim Bedall and I'm the teaching pastor over at our Sugar Grove campus. And as you uh, are aware, over the last couple of weeks, we have been uh, doing a flip-flop of all of our uh, campus pastors and teaching pastors. And uh, it is a privilege to be here uh, to bring forth God's Word. And just a word of encouragement, it is great every time I come here to see Uh, more and more new people that I've never met before. And that means God's work is going forward in this church. And uh, I want you to know each and every week, uh, your pastors get together with the rest of the campus pastors at the other campuses, and they boast very pridefully, and it's okay sometimes to be prideful about things, boast greatly about the work that's going on here at the Aurora campus. And we celebrate with you and we pray with you that God would continue to do that work. Our prayer, of course, is for Pastor Travis and Melissa as they take some time of rest. Thank you as a church for allowing them uh, to do that and to... uh, uh, be of help to David as he kind of carries the load uh, during this time. But we look forward to having uh, Pastor Travis and Melissa back. I'm going to have you take God's Word in your hands and turn to the book of Genesis this morning. Uh, if uh, you don't know much about the Bible or where things are at in the Bible, make it real easy for you. I want you to turn to page 1 in your Bible. If you have trouble, uh, you should feel a little bit awkward asking for help uh, to find our passage A. But we're going to be in page 1 of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. And as we have just seen on the screen, we're in a series that we've entitled Relationships. And in this series, there's one main focus, one main theme that we want to address in this series. And that is, life is all about relationships. Every aspect of our life has to do with other people. We do not live this life in solitary confinement apart from all other people. Everything we do... All that we're a part of has others around us in very close and intimate ways, and as a result of that, we have to understand if we're going to navigate through life, then we're going to have to navigate the relationships that come with life. Uh, Some of them are close relationships, a relationship between a husband and wife. Uh, Others are, are relationships between parents and kids. We recognize there's relationships in the workplace, in the neighborhood. Everywhere we go, even in the church, we have to know and understand how to live in relationship with other people. It has been said that you can uh, determine whether or not you're having a good life based on the relationships that you have. For some of you right now, you may say life's not going real well. Things aren't going the way I want, as was just articulated. Maybe you're going through the storms of life, and I can uh, contend with you this morning that I think that a major part of that may be the relationships that you have. Maybe a relationship's broken. Maybe it's severed in some ways, or there's tension in one of the relationships you have. You see, our lives are going to ebb and flow based on the relationships and the quality of relationships that we have. But as we began this series, one thing we wanted to be very careful was was that we would not just have a bunch of, if you will, moralistic teaching about having good relationships. All community centers and even unbelievers can talk about the importance of good marriages and the importance of good relationships between parents and their kids. But what about Christians? Why is it so important for Christians to have quality relationships. Why is it so important that in our marriages and in our uh, parenting and in our workplaces and in our church that the quality of relationships would be of the best quality when it comes to our relationship uh, with each other? The reason why is because we are a people who dedicate themselves to a book that is all about Relationships. You see, the book that you hold in your hands, the Holy Scriptures, the Bible, is a book about relationships. Oh, it speaks about marriages and parenting and our relationship with our neighbors and and even our relationship with, um, with believers. But I want you to know the main theme of this book is a book about a broken relationship, a broken relationship that each of us have apart from our God. And how Jesus Christ came to redeem us and restore us and make uh, new the relationship that was once broken and lost. And through these pages of Scripture, we see over and over again God renewing and redeeming this relationship. That you and I can have a quality and supernatural relationship with the God who created us. Well, this morning what I want to do is I want to find out where do we go to find model relationships. You see, if we uh, look to the world, many times what we'll do is, we'll if we're looking for marriage advice, we'll find the older couple that's been married for sixty to seventy-five years, and we'll say, "What's the secret?" to a long-lasting marriage. Tell us the secret. Tell us so that we can apply those truths. If, if you're looking for help in the parenting realm, you'll go find someone who's done a great job and their kids are now adults and, and even grandchildren have come and everything seems to have gone well. And so the parent who's got these little youngsters all around them who are struggling in the moments of, of raising a family will say, what's the secret to godly parenting? Maybe uh, our relationships with a neighbor, and we'll find someone who has a great community heart, and we'll go to them. But I want to contend this morning with you that, that it isn't just looking to one another for help. When it comes to relationships, we have to look to the person of God. And we have to look at how God relates, not with us, not with his spouse, not with his kids, but how he relates with himself within the Trinity, And that's a hard thing to do. It has been said that uh, if you desire to speak on the Trinity, you've got about five words speaking on the Trinity before you go into heresy. And so this is a mystery that is difficult for us to understand, but the Bible clearly articulates it. And what I want to do this morning is look to the heart and mind of God and how he relates as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And my focus and my goal for you this morning is to take what we learn about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and how that three interact as one God and learn what they do, how they do it, and apply it to our marriages, to our relationship with our kids or our parents, to our workplaces. Apply it to our neighbors. Apply it to even total strangers. I will tell you the key to successful relationships is not found in other people but the person of God. And I want us to look this morning at just one passage of Scripture as our launching pad to understand a little bit more of how we were created and what God intends for us to do. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26, uh, we'll start in verse uh, 26, it says the following, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. Let's stop there and let's pray. Father God, we ask for your blessing on not only the reading, of your word, but the teaching and hearing of it. Father, I pray that you would take what is shared this morning and you would allow it to be applied to our lives so that our relationships may be modeled by your relationship. Our relationships might be relationships that are based and founded on you and how you relate uh, to yourself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Speak through me now, Lord, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we look to the person of God, uh, we need to do a little bit of a Theology 101. Now, we just sang a couple songs that celebrate the Trinity. God in his tri-unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I want to share with you, as we address the issue of Trinity, we recognize that it's something that the church is woefully ignorant about. In fact, when many Christians speak of the Trinity, they find themselves going into one heresy or another, thinking that they're communicating what is truly true about God. We usually will do something that will take away from the glory of God, because in our finite minds, we try to create, if you will, analogies or pictures of what the Trinity is. So let me explain a little bit about what we mean when we say God is Trinity. First of all, the Bible makes it clear that we worship one God. In fact, in, in uh, Moses' uh, time with God's people, he announces in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now let's stop there for a moment. Unlike almost all other religions in the world, Christianity believes in one God. Not a, a, a prism of gods or a, a, a pantheon of gods, but one God. We do not believe in a God that oversees the sky and one that oversees the lakes and a God that oversees love and another God that oversees sex and a God that oversees money. No, we believe in one God who reigns supreme over all things. He is the God who created all things, both seen and unseen. He is the God who rules over all things. There is no lieutenant gods, there is no side gods, there is one God, our God in heaven. But the Bible makes it clear that while there is one God, the Bible over and over again affirms some things about the persons of God. Now throughout the uh, Old Testament we will see God the Father over and over again. And what will many times happen is, is you'll get a knock at the door by either uh, Mormons or Jehovah's Witness who will come and say, your belief about God is completely wrong. You see, you've created three gods, God the Father, one, God the Son, two, and God the Holy Spirit, three. So communicate to me, help me understand from the scriptures that you read that Jesus is God and the Spirit is God, because that's what we believe. While being one, they are three. And so how do we begin to do that? Well, first of all, the Bible teaches us, throughout the New Testament especially, it tells us over and over again that not only is God the Father God, nobody will dispute that, but that Jesus Christ is God. Let me give you a couple references with regards to it. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 9, the Messiah is spoken about. Remember, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. He will also be called Mighty, help me out, God. So this one who is coming was going to be God. For an Old Testament prophet like Isaiah to affix to a person, the name of God would have been blasphemy. But the prophet said the one who's coming isn't just gonna be a man, he isn't just gonna be a savior, he is going to be God. Then we get to the New Testament. And we see the New Testament not only articulate the sonship of Jesus Christ, this is my son whom I am well pleased, but it also tells us and articulates that over and over again, Jesus is being worshipped as God. Remember the disciples, they're in the boat, and there's a terrible storm that's taking place. And they're freaking out. Jesus is in the bottom of the boat. He's sleeping. He's not worried about a thing. And they wake up Jesus. Jesus, we're going to die. We're going to die. And what does Jesus do? Jesus comes over to the bow of the boat, and he begins to hush the sea. Well, what do the disciples do? it says disciples bowed down and worshiped. Now let's stop there for a second. The disciples are good Jewish boys, right? And as good Jewish boys, they would have learned from the youngest of ages that they aren't to bow down to anybody but God himself. Jesus, being a great, perfect rabbi, at any point that he would have seen them bow down and worship, he would have said, get up, Don't do that. Remember the angel in the book of Revelation? John bows down to the angel. The angel says, get up. Don't do that. Don't get me in trouble with my boss. Jesus accepts worship. He doesn't say, hey, you only worship God. You only bow down to God. No. As being God, he bows down. How about we go to the to the uh, passage, uh, John chapter uh, 20, where uh, uh, the resurrection has taken place. And Thomas, remember, is, is gone. He's, he's doubting the resurrection. He, he's sulking in his sorrow about Jesus being dead. And he walks into the upper room. And there before him is the risen Jesus, And what does Thomas say? Thomas comes and he touches his hands and his side and he announces to the disciples and everybody in the room, my Savior and help me out, my God. Jesus should have said, what are you doing? I'm not God. There's only one God in heaven. He is God the Father. No, Jesus receives worship. It happens again at the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus goes and, and they what do they do? They bow down and worship. And so Jesus accepts worship as God because he is God. How about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is spoken of that he resides in all of our lives. He indwells every believer. To be able to indwell every believer would mean that the Spirit of God is omnipresent. I'm not omnipresent. Tom, you're not omnipresent. Sometimes I wish I could be all places at all times, but I can't and Tom can't. And the reason why is we're human beings. Only God can be at every place at all times. The Spirit of God is spoken of in that way. The New Testament says all the time, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit of our God, always together, always on the same playing field. So when we say we worship God, we worship God as Father, as Son, as and as Holy Spirit. Now, a couple things that I want you to be aware of. First of all, I want you to be aware of a sheet of paper that I put in here uh, in your bulletin that speaks to this, because I'm not going to spend a lot more time on it, but it's a visual representation of what we believe and how we believe and how some of the analogies fall short of clearly communicating What the Trinity is. And I want you to spend some time after church, spend some time sharing with your kids, going through this, helping them understand what God in Trinity is all about. Our church makes a special emphasis on speaking to this issue of God in Trinity. Look to the screen uh, in front of you. It says the following from our church doctrinal statement. Do we have that slide? Uh, There's only one living and true God who is a spiritual and personal being, He is a creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. His plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. He's infinite in holiness, love, and all other perfections. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, and He's present everywhere. His knowledge is perfect in a sense to all things, past, present, and future, including the future decisions of His free creatures. To Him we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. The eternal and unchanging triune God reveals Himself to us as Father Son and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes but without division of nature, essence, or being. So, why is the Trinity so important to our understanding for that matter, the basis of all relationships? Well, I want you to understand as we look deeply into what the Trinity is and how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit interact with one another that we will learn by understanding that we've been created in the image and likeness of God, that God has called us and created us and made us for relationships. For some of us this morning, we've been jaded by relationships. We've been broken by relationships. And you think, you know what, if I have to interact with another person, I'd rather just die than have to deal with that again. And yet, What God has created us for is for real and true relationships, to have certain characteristics. I want you to notice, and I'm going to scare you with the six characteristics this morning uh, of of how the Trinity relates to uh, themselves and how we need to understand ourselves and how we ought to relate with people. My first couple points are a little longer. Uh, At the end, you'll wonder, is he ever going to get done? I want you to know I'll be done by 1145, 12 o'clock. We'll just invite the second service in and we'll go from there. Oh, we'll get done in plenty of time. But here's the first thing I want you to recognize this morning. When we look at God and understand that we are created and made in the image and likeness of God, we first of all will see that you and I within the human design are, are one of immense complexity. The human design is one of immense complexity. Any husband here who's been married to his wife for any amount of time knows the complexity of a human being. Amen? We know that. Our wives are complex creatures. Likewise, men, your wife is wondering the same thing about you. You are a complex individual and a complex creature. But Genesis one twenty six tells us that man was created in the image of God. I want you to notice one thing about that phrase there in the Old Testament. Verse 26 of chapter 1 of Genesis God says the following, let us make man in our own image. God's having a conversation with whom? Is he saying that to the angels? No, he's speaking very possessively, let us. Who's the us? It's God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in Holy Trinity speaking to one another in one voice. Let us do something together. So what does God do? He creates, and he creates humanity. And we are told that we are created in the image of, and likeness of God. What does that mean? mean that we look like God? Some of you think you do. Do we sound like God? Do we talk like God? Some of us wish we would. Do we act like God? No, what it means is is that God has created us with certain attributes and certain uh, capacities that make us different than all other creation. Well, what are some of those things? Well, first of all, we are complex creatures. I have a dog at home. We got him about uh, eight months ago. His name's Wrigley. Little, I don't know what he is, kind of a poodle type thing. I know people don't want to hear about Wrigley. But Wrigley is not a complicated individual, okay? He's happy, he's sad. He needs to go to the bathroom, he needs food. It's really easy, okay? It's not hard to relate to the dog. There isn't a whole spectrum of, of uh, emotions a part of Wrigley's life. He's, he's a pretty simple creature. But when it comes to human beings, we are complex because we're created with a special dignity. And when it talks about image and likeness, it tells us not only how we are created, but how we are are going to live in society with one another. What does it mean that we are made in the image and likeness of God? First of all, we are complex creatures because of this image bearing. First, because we are emotional creatures. We're emotional We have a massive spectrum by which we can show how we're feeling. My dog is happy or sad, right? He's nothing in between. But this morning, we could spend hours talking about how each of us are feeling, where we're at, what's hurting, what's not hurting, the sorrow of our heart, the joy of our heart, the discontentedness of our spirit, the contented nature in our spirit. We could go to all manner of emotions, And what that makes for is difficult times of relating to one another. It isn't simply that either we're smiling or we're not smiling. It would be easy to do life. But we have no ability to really know where any of us are at in the spectrum of emotions. The second thing that makes us like God is that we have an intellect. We are thinkers. We have the ability to rationally make decisions for ourselves. Now, what does that have to do with relationships. What it enables us to do is determine how much of ourselves we're going to reveal to another human being. You see, I have a choice when I interact with you, and you have a choice when you interact with me. You have a decision that's going to be made. How much am I going to reveal of myself to Tim? And how much is Tim going to reveal himself to me? You see, that's relationships. Relationships is the determining factor of, am I going to reveal all of who I am, or am I only going to reveal part of who I am? Am I going to be surfacey in my relationship with you, or am I going to be deep? Now, I have the ability to make a decision in in a nanosecond of whether I'm going to do that or not. Now, my relationship with my wife, and hopefully your relationship with your spouse, is one where you've revealed yourself to that individual. That your dreams, your desires, your, your hurts and your concerns and, and your uh, vision of where you want to be in the years to come have been revealed to your spouse. That's how God created marriages, to, to have that openness. But then there's also you have a conversation, and I hope that you don't go into a church service where you're brand new to the church. I didn't walk in and met some of you people for the first time and said, sit down, let me tell you everything about myself. All the nitty-gritty. You're going to get Everything we don't do that. There's a decorum. There's a decision that is made that we will not reveal all these things. Why? Because God has shown us that he does not reveal all things about himself. In fact, in the scriptures, we are told in Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine, Moses says this about our God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. And so God says, in my relationship with people in my creation, there are things I'm going to share, right? I'm going to reveal myself in certain ways, but there are things I'm going to keep secret. There are things I'm going to keep covered. Now, he reveals all of who he is to the persons of the Trinity. God the Father knows all of God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And likewise, on the other side of that relationship, God revealed himself to Adam differently than he revealed himself to Moses. He revealed himself to Moses in ways he didn't reveal himself to the Old Testament prophets. God revealed himself to the apostles in ways that he didn't reveal himself to the prophets. And God has revealed himself to us very differently than he reveals himself to the rest of the world. God makes decisions. Now here's the thing. God created you and I to be transparent in our relationships. Let me explain why. In the Garden of Eden, God plants man in the Garden of Eden with woman. And I don't mean this in any joke in any way, but he creates them naked. And there's a reason why. Because prior to sin, God's desire for us was to be known and to be fully known. Does that make sense? God's focus and intention is that we would not hide ourselves from one another. But just like in Trinity, we would reveal all of who we are to one another, that we would be known and that the people around us would be known fully. Here's what sin does. In the garden, man and woman eat of the fruit and they sin, they fall. And what's the first thing that they do? What is the first activity of sinful man? But to cover themselves. You see, the reason why you and I have difficulty in our relationship, listen, is because we're too busy covering ourselves instead of revealing who we are. Why? Why do we cover ourselves? The reason why we cover ourselves is we don't trust others, right? Because they're sinners. And they may take what we, we know, our emotional nakedness, our, our uh, uh, revealing of who we are, they may share it with a whole manner of people. We cover ourselves not only because we don't trust, but because we're ashamed of who we are. We, we, don't, we want to hide what God has created, not, not declare it. And we, we, we compare ourselves. So instead of being honest and open about who we are, we're worried, well, well, I know so-and-so doesn't have this problem, and so-and-so doesn't have this issue, and so I'm going to stay quiet, because if I reveal who I am and my fears and my concerns, well, then I'll be viewed as being weird or awkward. You see, the devil longs for us to live not in transparency in our relationships, but in secret. And sadly, there are marriages here today where spouses have lived together for years and they don't know the real person who they're living with. There are parents who have hidden themselves to their children that the kids don't have any idea who mom and dad really are. Oh, we've set up this beautiful picture of who we are. It's the picture we show the church, right? Right? Dad never has fears. Dad never has concerns. Dad never sins. Mom never has an issue. Mom never has a concern. And the kids think, well, they must be perfect, and therefore I've got to be perfect, instead of being real and telling your kids, listen, I'm a broken, dysfunctional sinner, and so are you. And we're working through this together just as mom and dad fight with sin, so you're going to have to. We come to church, and we're all all dolled up, look, a perfect family. We never argue, we never, and we don't tell the people that we were yelling and screaming the moment we drove into the parking lot at the Aurora campus. It's amazing what happens. The doors open up to church, and the faces change, and the argument stops. We better look perfect. We better cover ourselves because real relationships is showing people exactly who you're not instead of who you really are. So God has created us for real and true transparency. And the problem is, is that the devil has bought us, has has us buying into the lie that we need to be something we're not. And because of that, your relationships and my relationship will always be broken. Notice the second thing that we learn about looking at who God is and, and what God is all about. And that is not only are we created with immense complexity, but we are created for community. For community. Within the first couple chapters of the scriptures, we see God creating. Let there be light. Let there be land. Let there be water. Let there be creeping things. Let there be plant and and animal life. And he's creating. And it's a beautiful picture of all that God is doing. Then if you turn the page after chapter one, we get into chapter two. And God has now created this beautiful garden between two rivers. He's created this garden where he is going to place the crowning achievement of his creation in it to live and to enjoy and all of that. So he creates man. Man is greater than anything that God has ever created. Man is going to be superior to everything. The angels, the animals, the plants, all of that. So he creates Adam. And in verse 18, after every time he creates, he says, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Everything was good. And then in verse 18 of chapter 2, he creates man, and notice what he says. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. He's never said that before, by the way. It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, this is very important, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now let's stop there for a moment. Up to this point... God is a God who creates not one, but plurality of creation. Let me explain. When God created the angels, he did not create one angel. He created myriads upon myriads of angels. Let me explain. A community of angels, right? To interact, to to worship alongside one of, to have existence with. When he created the cosmos... God did not create one ball in this thing we call space. He created a myriad of planets. Our scientists look with the longest and and greatest of telescopes, and what do they learn? There's more planets out there. There's more stars out there than we even can comprehend. Why? Because God creates a community of planets. When God creates animal life and plant life, he doesn't create one plant. He created all kinds of flowering plants, and we are overjoyed during the summertime years to see uh, the moments where that plant life comes to life, and we see all manner of, of life when it comes to animals. We see all kinds of animals. My family this last week went to the shed Aquarium, and we went, and all kinds of fish, all kinds of, of sea creatures, all looking incredibly different, some so ugly, you wonder why God created them, and then you're reminded as you look in the glass, you see a reflection of yourself, and you're like, well, God created me as well. I don't know if you struggle with that, but sometimes I do. But God creates everything in community. Then he creates man. And he creates man, and man has a job of picking out all the names of the animals. And so the animals are coming by, two by two, they're coming. And he's saying, okay, male and female, you're the elephants. Male and female, you're the tigers. Male and female, you're the snails. Male and female, you're the snakes. And he goes and he names all of them. And I wonder during that time if Adam isn't sitting, wait a minute. I'm just alone. Every one of them has their own community. Every one of them has another with them. And I wonder if God looked down in the garden and saw Adam in a bit of despondency saying, where's my community? So what does God say? God says we're going to make community for man. Notice in chapter 2, he goes on and it says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last. Now, it had been a while. When he says this is at last, I've been waiting for this. My heart has been yearning for this. This has been a deep place of sorrow in my life. And God, you have in essence finally brought the answer. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Literally in the Hebrew language, what he is doing, and again, this will be a bit funny because we don't translate the scriptures in this way. Adam is saying hot diggity dog. That's what he's saying, okay? He's hooping, he's hollering, he's saying, all right, this is great. This is community. Now I want you to notice then what takes place. He says, uh, God says in verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So community, one of the community relationships is going to be a relationship of marriage, but it's also gonna be a relationship with family. And notice what it goes on to say, they should become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We talked about the transparency already. And so here's what we have. God creates community, man, woman. Now let's stop there for a second. One of the first things that God tells man and woman is to do what? To be fruitful and multiply. So they're not on perpetual honeymoon, okay? That's not the goal and focus of man and woman. The goal and focus of man, listen, is to create more community, right? be fruitful and multiply, create more people. And and because of that, as you create more people, now you're going to have children. Now you're going to relate with them and they're going to have children. And that means you're going to have grandchildren. And this thing's going to get so big that you're going to have billions of people inhabiting the earth that you're going to have, be able to have relationships with. You see, God created us to have community, to have community. Now, why would he do this? Because God, remember, the planets, plant and animal life, all of those things had community. Let us never forget that before the foundations of the earth, before there was ever time, when there was no existence of created life before the angels or anything else, God resided in community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God said, you're going to be like me, and you're going to be in community just as I'm in community with the persons of the Godhead, so you will have community But why? Why community? Community helps us with two things. Write this down. Community helps us in the celebration and in comfort. In celebration and in comfort. Let's look at how God enjoys community. God says that he created. Now, we get this idea that God is this long-bearded, white-bearded God who who sits on a celestial throne, and this is how he created. Let there be light. Boom. Boom. Let there be plants, boom. Let there be animals, boom. And he does that. He just kind of just sits there. That's good. That's good. That's good. If you forget that God is Trinity and in community, then creation takes on a very different look. But if you see God as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, then this is more like what creation was like. The father said to the son, let there be light. And the son and the spirit said, Woohoo, yeah, high five. This is awesome. And then the son said, let's create this. And boom, this is great. And they celebrated together in oneness. Look at what we've created. Look at what we have done. Isn't this awesome? Here's why shared experiences and celebrations are wonderful. I like golfing every once in a while. I don't get to do it very often, but I do enjoy golfing. And you never golf by yourself. And here's why. Because if you golf by yourself, there's a chance you might hit a hole in one, right? And so you want someone there to celebrate with you if that chance ever takes place. Because what good is a hole in one if you hit the hole in one by yourself? You look around and you're like, well, did anybody see it? Is anybody going to believe me when I get back to the clubhouse? Hey, I got a hole-in-one on the par three. Yeah, sure you did, okay? And the fish is this big, right? And so you want someone there in your golf buddy group to be able to be there to celebrate with it. That's how God created. God created with uh, with Trinity celebrating all along the way. We have been created because God gives us unique experiences of celebration. And celebrations are times where we want to share it with someone else. Has something great happened to you in the last couple of weeks? Something awesome? What's the first thing you do? You pick up the phone and you tell somebody, look, look, listen what happened. You're not going to believe what took place. You're not going to believe the phone call I got. You're not going to believe what happened at work. You're not going to believe what happened at school. Let me tell you what the kids did at the ball game. Shared experiences for celebration. God did it in creation. But also there's shared experiences that community brings in comfort. When Jesus is experiencing the greatest agony in the garden on the night he was betrayed, Jesus didn't go, it says, into isolation. Jesus went and he communed with his father. He went and he spoke to his father. He agonized with his father. He spoke about the hurts and pains with whom his father and the Bible makes it clear that the Spirit attends to Jesus during that time. During the time of the temptation of Jesus, Jesus is, is communing with the Father in heaven. In even times of difficulty, what do we do? About a year ago, Amanda was diagnosed with breast cancer. And it was a hard time. And I can assure you that what we did not say was... Okay, we're gonna deal with this ourselves. Nobody's gonna know about it. We're just gonna grin and bear this thing, and we won't let anybody will just nobody will be the wiser. No, what did we do? We get the bad medical report, and that afternoon we're talking with family and friends. Will you pray for us? Will you walk with us through this journey? Will you will you help us? Can you encourage us? We're scared, we're nervous about what's going to come. We need community in the good times of life and in the bad times of life. But here's what happens. Here's what happens the devil moves us back to isolation. That's the sorrow of things like depression and suicide. Because they move us, instead of running to community, we run to isolation because you say, nobody will understand, people will judge me, uh, and and people won't want to help. Instead of saying, there are people who love me, who care for me, who want to reach out to me in my darkest hour, they are here to help me. You see, the Bible makes it clear that the devil loves isolation. Is it by any surprise that the first sin, the first deception happens when man and woman are separated? The devil comes not to both of them, because two are always better than one, the Scripture says, but he goes to the woman, and he starts lying to the woman. Why didn't he go and lie to the woman when Adam was there? Because Adam would have quickly said, hey, wait a minute, no, that's not true, That's not true about you. And here's the thing that you need to understand. The devil speaks to you in isolation a whole lot more than he does in community. That's why the devil loves it when the church is fighting with each other. Because what it does is it creates isolation instead of community. And so the devil wants us to not live as God lives, in community with one another, in love for one another, but to do it apart. And so the church talks about community but really, we're just a group of people living life by ourselves. That's why the Bible, over and over again, speaks to the idea of us living out life with one another commands. Love one another. Encourage one another. Well, what does that mean? You've got to have another with you. You can't do this by yourself. If God intended, listen, if God intended for us to live in isolation, God could have created seven billion planets, each one of us having our own planet to live by ourselves. I know some of you really like that idea, but he didn't. He created one planet, Earth, and he put seven billion people on it to live at one time. We've got to figure out how to live in community with one another. Third thing I want you to see this morning is that when we look at the Trinity we see that we have great relational capacity. These will move a little quicker now. Great relational capacity. Psalm 139, the psalmist David is praising God for, for the idea that God knows who He is. He knows His comings and goings. He puts it this way in Psalm 39, 1-6. through six. And so the psalmist praises God, you know who I am, you have this capacity of knowledge and this understanding of who I am, and and I revel in it. Well, being created in the likeness and image of God gives us an ability to have relational capacity to know people and to know them deeply. God knows lots of people, and he knows lots of people. In fact, he knows all people intimately. What God wants of us is not for us to be omniscient. We're not God. We do not know all things. But what God has given us a capacity for is to know lots of people and to know them very deeply. So write this down. God gives us a relational capacity in the breadth, okay, the width, if you will, uh, of it. Did you know scholars tell us, uh, doctors and sociologists say that we have the capacity, the human mind has the capacity to know 5,000 people? 5,000 people, that's a lot of memory, okay? You don't even know how many people you know. You're in the middle of the jewel a checkout line, and you see that person, you're like, I know you. I'm not sure where I know you. I can't remember your name, and, and because the world doesn't operate like Village Bible Church with the name tags, I don't get any help in the process. But I know you, I just need to have my memory jogged as to remember. We have the capacity of knowing lots and lots of people. Think of all the people we come in contact with in our neighborhoods, in our churches, in our workplaces, on the sports teams we're a part of, even people that we meet throughout the activities of life. We know lots of people. And God has given us that ability to know lots of people for one reason, so that you would know lots of people. But some of us, quite frankly, we are unwilling to know any more people I have a friend who tells me, I have all the friends I need. I don't need any more. I can't keep up with all of them anyway. So my goal is not to have any more friends. What a sorrowful response. God has given us the capacity to know lots of people. But notice he's given us the ability to know not just a great breadth of people, but a depth to people. And what that means is God uniquely gives us experiences to know people incredibly deeply. I've been married to my wife for almost 20 years, and listen, at no point in my marriage have I said, you know what, Amanda, I think I know everything about you. You don't need to tell me anything more. I know everything I need to know. My kids, I've now had them in our, in our family. We've watched them grow up from, from being babies now to the oldest being 13, and I don't sit there and say, I got you all figured out. I know everything. No, God has shown us that we could spend any, a, a lifetime with a human being and still not fully know the person that we're living with that we can know them from birth and still not know our children. We learned that, by the way, in the teenage years, right? When we're sitting there and they won't say a thing at the dinner table and we're like trying to draw that out. Help me out. I want to know who you are. And like, I'm fine. How was school? Wonderful. And we're like, there's more there. We know there's more. And God has called us as people to know lots of people and to know a certain group of people very deeply. And where that depth of relationships, marriage, family. And let me tell you one more place, the church. You see, the church, because we are brought into the body of Christ, we have a oneness that the world does not. The Bible makes it clear over and over again, we are brothers and sisters. Oh, we have different skin colors. We come from different nations. We have different languages. But God says we are formed together into one church, one body, which is under the head, which is Christ. And because of that, we're called brothers and sisters. And that depth of relationship is seen over and over again in our one another commands. To live life in community because we have relational capacity to love each other deeply. Well, how do we have that depth? Jesus models it for us. There's no greater love than this. A man lays down his life for his friends. And we're called to do likewise. We're called to serve one another. Care for one another. Admonish and teach one another. And these one another commands create depth of relationships. We live life together. And in the triumphs of life and the tribulation of life, we are bound together in a way that the world will look at us and they will know we are Christians because of our love, the depth of relationship we have for one another. We have a relational capacity. I'm halfway done. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Number four, because of that, we have to delight Not disparage our diversity. Now we are told, the Bible makes it clear that we believe in one God who reveals himself as three distinct persons, totally distinct from one another. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit. They are distinct persons. Just as you and I are distinct persons, they are distinct persons. And because of that, there's a diversity, not only in personhood, but in role. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, but they're all God. There's an equality that is there. They're distinct from one another, and yet they have roles that are vastly different. The Father is the one who providentially rules and reigns over creation. The Son is the one who was sent to put on flesh, make His dwelling among us to redeem mankind back to the Father. The Spirit is the one who baptizes and indwells every believer. And nowhere in the Trinity, though they are different, is there ever an argument by the Trinity with one another? Let me explain. The Son never says, Why do I have to be the one who goes to earth? Why do I have to be the one who puts on flesh and and has to limit some of the prerogatives of being God? Wait a minute. Why do I have to be the one who goes to Calvary? Why do I have to feel pain? Why do I have to be forsaken? Come on, Father. Sure must be nice sitting on your throne in heaven, having the angels worship and adore you. i got to go to earth and be mobbed and and be scolded and and be uh, mocked and abused. You never hear that. You never hear the Spirit say this. Hey, son, where are my holidays? Those human beings, they celebrate your birth. They celebrate your death. They celebrate your resurrection. I don't get any holidays. When was the last time Village Bible Church spent any time focusing in on Pentecost? That's my day. That's my holiday, and they're not spending any time on it. Where are my songs? Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. That's the only one I get. Jesus has all these songs going for him. Do you ever hear that? No, what you hear is, the Father say of the Son, this is my Son, who I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Jesus says of the Spirit, I must go so that the Spirit may come and greater things you will do because of Him than you have done with me. You see, in our diversity as human beings, because of sin, we look at people who are different and a curtain goes down. Sociologists say if a person has a different skin color or a different language, we will will initially in that relationship not see a deep desire to really connect. And that's, listen, that is the great testimony of this campus. Because this campus is, is finding itself full of all colors and all backgrounds and all languages. And what's happening? Love is the trademark. Love is what is taking place. But instead of delighting in it, racism, bigotry. You're different than me? I have to look at you with suspicion. I have to speak about you as as being an abstract instead of being a real person. How does God do it? He's completely distinct from uh, the other persons of the Trinity. He delights in it. So when you run into someone of a different nationality, a different background, delight in it. Why? Because what you see is how God creates. And God has a relationship with all these people and God has called us to have a relationship not just with the whites around us but the blacks and Hispanics and Asians and, and the Arabs and well, maybe they don't speak our language or they're culturally different than us. What do we do in our sin? We're scared of them instead of loving on them. We don't delight in God's diverse creation. We disparage it. Notice, no matter who we are, no matter who we are we must pursue humility we need to recognize no matter who we are there's a humility that must be a part of our lives god is equal and yet in this equality there is a hierarchy to things the father i'm sorry the son submits to the father and the spirit submits to the son while there is equality there is submission the son says this in john 6:38 For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Now, that wouldn't seem all that odd if that was a human being talking, okay? It wouldn't be odd for me to say, I came down to earth because my boss told me to, right? It takes great emphasis when we recognize the Son is God himself. So God of the universe says, I'm not going to do my will, but I'm going to do the will of the Father. I'm going to lay aside my prerogative of being God, and I'm going to do the will of the one who sent me. Jesus does this in the garden where he says, not my will, Father, but your will be done. And then, of course, Philippians chapter 2, that it speaks of the humiliation of Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but laid it all aside, becoming nothing, being found in human likeness. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. If God the Son could humble himself, being perfect in all his ways, why is it so hard for us to do that? Why is it so hard for us to humble ourselves with regards to our relationships? One of the biggest reasons why our relationships fall is because of our own personal arrogance and pride. And instead of being humble, we're proud. We're arrogant. And the Trinity reminds us that even God saw fit to humble himself, and here's why. Why did Jesus humble himself? He did so to reconcile you and me back to himself. So here, I want you to write this phrase down. It came up in my own mind, and and I believe the Lord laid it on my heart. Write this down. With regards to your relationships, whether it's your spouse, your kids, your boss, your co-workers, your neighbor, we learn from Jesus that humility is the vehicle of restored relationships. Had Jesus not humbled himself, we would not be reconciled. Let me tell you, husband and wife who are fighting right now, humility is the way that that relationship is restored. Parents and kids that are fighting with one another right now, humility is the vehicle of restored relationships. It's the only way we will be restored in our relationships because it's the only way God could restore us back to himself. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Are you willing in your relationships to have a part of yourself die So that that relationship can live. It's the vehicle to restored relationship. Finally, we must strive for relational unity. Turn in your Bibles for a moment. I'll just be here for a minute and we'll close. John chapter uh, 17. John chapter 17. Jesus is is, uh, praying on the night that he was betrayed. And he's having a conversation with his father. And in John 17, verse 20, Jesus prays this. He's prayed for his apostles, his 11 disciples who are with him. But in verse 20, he leads to praying for us. I do not ask only for these alone, but also for those who will believe me through their word. That's us. We believe in the apostles' word, their message. That those may all be one, just as you, Father, and I are one that I am in you and you in me, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, that I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. I don't know if I've not looked at this passage maybe as clearly as I did under this understanding of relationships. But here's the crazy thing that Jesus does. Jesus says and prays that you and I as Christians would experience a oneness only experienced by the Father and the Son. Think about that for a moment. Now, you could say, well, what Jesus is praying is for something that will never happen. Then why would the omniscient God pray for something like that? And yet Jesus prays that you and I in our experience and our relational unity would be one just as the Father and Son are one. And if he prays it, that means we have the capacity to be that, okay? That if we turn away from our sin, we turn away from our selfishness, we turn away from our arrogance in our relationships, we could experience a oneness that the Trinity only experiences. God's given us that ability. God's given us that ability, but there are things in our way. So, when we look at our relationships, we have to ask the question is that how God relates? Would God treat his spouse this way? Would God treat his children this way? Would God treat his parents this way? Would God treat his boss this way? His fellow employees? You see, when we look to the Trinity and we see how God relates to himself, we are given a manual of how we are to relate to one another. And when we live more like God and less like ourselves, our relationships will come together not be torn apart. And so don't think the Bible is just this prescription of have nice marriages, have nice relationships with your kids, have good relationships in the workplace, and, and be a popular individual in your neighborhood. God longs for you and I to have relationships like he has relationships in heaven. And when we do, we will be blessed. We will honor one another. Even though we're different, we will see the differences that we have as something beautiful and not something that's dirty. Let's pray. Father God, we come and we ask that you would enter into each and every one of our relationships. We are told that the triune God is a God who is love. And so, Lord, I pray that love would be our trademark. Love would be how we model every one of our relationships. Love would be every activity of our hearts and every action that we live out. We want to be like you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, as we relate with one another, as we relate to our spouses, as we relate to the myriad of relationships that we have as human beings, that we would do so out of a spirit and out of your command to love as Christ has loved us. Lord, I pray that our relationships would be modeled after the relationship that you have as Trinity. Lord, let the sin and the shortcomings of our lives and the fears that we have within us melt away as we look deep into who you are and how you exist as three in one. God, I pray for this church, that this church would experience a oneness that is being modeled by the Trinity through its diversity, as it grows, Lord, that people wouldn't say it's us four and no more, but that our arms would be open to see greater number of people brought into fellowship because you've given us the capacity to love and to relate with a great number of people and to do so with great depth. So, Lord, I pray that this campus would be a a model of that as they've already shown in these last years. Now, Lord, send us forth from this place with a new sense of who you are, that we'd be transformed into your likeness, that people might see through our love that we are truly Christians. We love you and give you the glory for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.